If the opening bars of this song make you want to reach for an old copy of Smash Hits magazine, you're not alone. Get ready for a walk down memory lane. I'm Genevieve, and joining me on Celebrity Catch-Up this week via Zoom, it's Chesney Hawks. Hi Chesney, how are you? Hello Genevieve, I'm good, very well, thank you. Nice, th- nice to be on your show, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, where do we find you today? I am in my studio in Los Angeles. And you've been living there for, well, you moved to LA quite a few years ago, so I was just wondering why you moved. Not that Chertsey, where you used to live, is is not great, but <laughs> obviously you made the move to LA. Yeah, I, we moved um, eight years ago now. I have three kids and a beautiful wife. And um, we just, my wife's American for a start. So she had done 14 years with me, I think, in England. Um, and she counts herself, actually more, my 18 years. And uh, she counts herself as kind of, you know, half English now, even though she's from Indiana. Um and uh, we kind of wanted to give the kids, uh, you know, another part of their culture, um, another side of their culture. And, and it was it really the most important thing for us was it was adventure. You know, I, me- I remember we had a beautiful house in, in Chertsey and uh, my wife and I were sitting at the back of um, our garden, which was on a farm. It was beautiful. There was horses there and the sun was going down and we looked back at our lovely house and I got my studio there and the kids were <laughs> in the good schools and everything else. And we're like, it's good, isn't it? Life's good. And then she turned to me and she said, it is good, but is this it? And uh, with those three words, it just kind of turned our world completely upside down because before, before you knew it, literally within, within six months, we'd moved over here. <laughs> wow. I mean, I guess if you've been there for eight years now, and I, I, well, I know you kind of commute back and forth between LA and, and England, but what do you miss most? about England when you're in LA, other than your beloved West Ham team. <laughs> that would going to be my first one. <laughs> There's quite a lot of things I miss. I mean, the obvious friends and family. Um, you know, I have a brother who has three kids uh, there, my mum and dad, um, and, you know, my good friends that I grew up with. So I miss them. I, I miss the kind of community spirit, that kind of pub culture thing, um, you know, uh, or, or local green culture, you know. Uh, they don't really have that here in LA. They, well, for a start, there's nothing green; it's all brown. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I miss that. I miss I miss the green and pleasant land. You know, is whenever I'm I'm home and uh, driving to a gig in Dorset or in the Lake District or something like that, and I never take it for granted. Um, just looking out the window and just at these beautiful, beautiful scenery, I really miss that footy banter. You know, that kind of blokes talking about football. You don't really get that here because I'm a big football man. And proper English beer. Yeah, that's something I miss. They don't know how to do beer over here. What do you have? I mean, I, I went to Spain many moons ago and um, they had this shop called Spain's Breeze, which was like Sainsbury's, <laughs> but, see what but they not. There. <laughs> yeah. um, and it just stocked products for expats. Yeah, there's loads of them here. There's a huge expat community here in Los Angeles. And there's actually a, a Facebook group where we're all members and it's become more than a Facebook group. Actually, they all meet um, for breakfast every Wednesday, I think in Hollywood, it's called Brits in LA. Um, So there's a shop um, down in Santa Monica that sells, you know, Marmite and Twixes and (laughs) anything Cadbury's and uh, Tetley (laughs) tea. 
uh, quavers. My, my, my daughter always makes me bring back quavers. I, I'm a mule, basically. I, I don't take my uh, suitcase for my clothes. I bring, uh, I bring back all of that stuff um, that the kids miss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess LA is quite showbiz, though. Do you have any famous neighbours? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of people around here. I remember walking into a bar around here and sitting at the table was George Clooney, Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey. They wow. were all, the three of them. It was like the, the multi-million dollar table. And, but you see those, you see famous people all the time, just, just going to the local supermarket, you know, as a standing behind, uh, you know, somebody famous. It's, it's, it's amazing. You see them all the time. You kind of take it for granted now. There's a Cuba Gooding Jr. the other day. I passed him on, uh, on a hike up in the, in the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like a joke. George Clooney, Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey walking yeah, into a bar. Yeah, we're at a table. <laughs> so, you walk into a bar, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, down to business. Let's dive straight into the nostalgia zone. Okay. Wow, I'm in the nostalgia zone. It's different here, isn't it? I like it. So we first saw you in... The film Buddy Song in early 1991. Mm -hmm. And I recorded it off the telly when it was on. And I think I might have worn out the VHS tape that I had it on. Were you my target demographic (laughs) back then, Jenny? I think I I was actually a bit younger because it was was rated 12 in the cinema, but I was 10 when it was released. That's because there was a sex scene. Exactly. We'll come on to that in a second. One pair of boobs. (laughs) (laughs) What, What are your memories of making the film particularly having Roger Daltrey as your dad it's funny because I've been doing this um, fortnightly show um, from here actually from my studio called Live and Unfiltered and I've been theming them every week and last week was my buddy song special and I had Roger on I had Sharon Juice who played my mum I had uh, Paul McKenzie who played my best friend I had the writer Nigel Hinton in so all of this stuff is quite you know, there in my brain already. <laughs> Roger was amazing. I mean, he's a he's a legend, obviously. Um, he's a a special guy, um, and he definitely took me under his wing. Uh, but, but as far as the filming goes, really, um, the people that were the most supportive for me, because uh, I was a young novice, so I hadn't acted before in my life. It was all completely new to me. So I was like thrown into the lion's den. So the people that were very supportive were the the thespians, the you know the actors that had had been around uh, the business for a long time, like Michael Elphick. He was fantastic with me, just such a lovely guy. Um, and Sharon Juice, who played my mum. So it was kind of the the older statesman actors that that kind of kept me kept my feet on the ground, helped me with the emotions of, of acting and you know, gave me the best kind of acting uh, tips and, and help along the way. Most of my emotional scenes were with, uh, with Sharon, uh, who played my mum. So she, and she was wonderful. And funny enough, I tracked her down on Twitter because I haven't spoken to her for so long, probably 20 odd years. And so I had to find her, <laughs> I tracked her down on Twitter and, uh, and we caught up and, and, and I, I thanked her, you know, all these years later um, for, for being such a, a, an emotional support for me. And you're still like your best friends with Paul McKenzie, aren't you? Who played Julius in the film? Yeah, I didn't have to track him down. He calls me every day. <laughs> Too much, in fact. <laughs> your your best yeah. man at your wedding? 
Yeah, he, I was best man at his. He was best man at mine. I'm godfather to his daughter, Esme. He's godfather to my daughter, Jessie. Um, you know, it's a love affair, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> it's a, Roger introduced us um, on the first day of rehearsal. And he came into, I was in my dressing room, he or in the green room or something like that. And Roger came in, marched to uh, Paul in and said, right, Chesney, this is Macca. Macca, this is Chesney. You, you guys are best friends. Now get to know each other. So we got to know each other. <laughs> and it's 30 years later and we're still best mates. I watched the film recently and I guess as an adult watching it now, I completely missed when I was 10 watching it, how, how adult the film actually is. I mean, there's like, there's knife crime, there's physical abuse, nudity. Yeah. And you mentioned there was a pair of boobs in there. So you right. had like this kind of sex scene as your first role. That must've been a real baptism of fire for you. It's funny. I have watched that. I watched the film recently too, in preparation for the show that I did. And uh, I hadn't seen it for probably 20 years and my kids hadn't seen it. So I was sitting there with my my sixteen year old daughter, and uh, when that scene came up, she couldn't look. She was like covering her eyes. I can't unsee it. Oh, my eyes are burning. Um, no one wants yeah, to see their dad like that. No, God, especially not with another woman. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess it was a bit of a baptism of fire. The whole thing was. I mean, it was such a challenge. You know, musically, it was a challenge because uh, since um, Coal Miner's Daughter was the only other film that had um, recorded all the musical scenes live. Um, so we were the, the next in line for that. We'd, no, one, no one had ever done that before. And was, uh, most film music scenes, if there's people singing or whatever, they're not actually live. It's, uh, you know, it's pre-recorded and mimed and stuff like that. Um, so one of the things that Roger wanted to make sure was that uh, it's all done live, I guess, because he comes from, you know, rock and roll background. Mm -hmm. So... So all of those scenes um, were, were live. And, and it's more challenging than you would think. I mean, obviously, it's what I do. I sing songs. But, y you know, when you're recording, when you're filming, there's, you have to do it for hours. Um, like, you know, if one scene can be as much as, as long as six hours and they reset and they made different angles and close-ups and all this stuff. And, of course, you have to sing it exactly the same and move your head in exactly the same way in the same place during the, uh, during the, the songs. So mm. it, it can be quite challenging. I remember being, you know, my voice was raw by the end of the days. I mean, watching it back now, I also realised that the one and only isn't even played in the film. <laughs> I mean, you kind of hear it faintly in the background in yeah. one scene, it's, but yeah. it's played over it's the credits. <laughs> it was like an afterthought, you know. Really, when we got to the end of the filming of the film, um, the record company, uh, they loved the album. And it is a good album, you know. Um, the music's great, Um but uh, they were like, we'd like to kind of explore the possibility of finding another couple of songs, um, you know, possibly something that, that could be the first single and that kind of... So the one and only came along afterwards. Then not a lot of people know this, actually, but my dad found it. He was friends with Stuart Newton, who was one of the, the heads of Warner Chapel Music at the time. They were old mates. And he was having lunch with him and... He put in a cassette. He said, what do you think of this? And he put in a cassette. My dad would be better at telling this story. but So he put in the cassette, and of course it was Nick Kershaw. Uh, and dad knew that I was a massive Nick Kershaw fan. So he was like, oh, is that a new Nick, Nick Kershaw album? Ted Chesney's going to be really happy with that, because he hadn't put anything out for a, few, a good three years, I think. 
And uh, he said, it is Nick, uh, but Nick's kind of taking a hiatus from um, recording himself and he's kind of looking to to branch into songwriting for other people. So all of these songs on this cassette, <laughs> remember those? What happened to them? Um, they're all free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so Dad, so he put on the one and only uh, and, and a couple of other songs and Dad fell in love with the one and only straight away. And he brought it to us. Uh, we were recording in the studio uh, at Abbey Road, actually. And... And there was a lot of people in the studio that day and dad's like, I think I found the song, you know, and he put it on. And I remember it was a studio three Abbey road and the song came on. And of course it sounds amazing. And I loved it. And, and I was very excited about the thought of meeting Nick Kershaw. Cause of course, if, if I was going to do a Nick Kershaw song, maybe, maybe I would meet Nick, you know, and that was my kind of uh, reason for wanting to do the song. But everybody else in the room was kind of lackluster about it, including Roger. Um, I think that there, was a, there were the words, sounds like a Nick Kershaw throwout <laughs> at one point. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, Dad and I kind of went back home that night feeling a little dejected, thinking, oh, well, you know, I, we both said, well, we think it's just worth recording, but... And the A&R man from the record company was also there. And uh, I think it was a Friday that Dad came in. And that over that weekend, we took a break. And on the Monday, Peter Robinson, the, the A&R, um, he called and said to Dad, all right, I think we might have something here. I've been listening to that song. It is a good one. So le maybe let's try Chesney's vocal out on the demo. <laughs> so, so that week, Nick came in. I got to meet Nick. And, and of course, the rest is history. We, all, we record, ended up recording it at Abbey Road. And... And that was that. And uh, then he ended up, uh, you know, being the first single. And obviously they, they shoehorned it into the film, as you said, <laughs> stuck it on the end credits. And <laughs> there you go. So since we're talking about that song, when you knocked Bart Simpson off the number one spot in the chart, I suppose you, you realised you'd made it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cher um, overtook me with the Shoop Shoop song. No, it's, not, it's not a bad person to be beaten by. <laughs> no, no, I'll take that. I'll take that. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess so. I know if you can if you can knock Bart Simpson off number one spot, and I did. I also the other thing about that is I kept James off of number one with "Sit Down." Oh, that's and that's that's a good tune as well. That's that's. Yeah, I yeah, mean, that's yeah. something to you know. Well, everyone would think that that one's that's one of those songs that everyone would think was a number one, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's quite a few of those. Last um, Christmas by Wham. Yeah, uh, wouldn't it be good, Nick Kershaw? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a few. Um, and so, so that, that's one of them. And I remember, um, you know, meeting James back, uh, back then and they were very nice to me and, and the boys, and uh, we got on quite well, but then many years later, uh, they put out a best of album and when on, in the liner notes for sit down, they called me a, a, a peculiar man boy, <laughs> which I thought was a little bit naughty. <laughs> that's a bit harsh. <laughs> I haven't let it go yet, you know. <laughs> Because, you know, as I said, at the time, we got on quite well. It was like we, we probably were similar age, you know. I know that there's, you know, that I was looked at as a, as a kind of a, a pop, pop act, you know, heartthrob, whatever, which is very different from what they are, you know, um, in, indie music uh, darlings, as it were. To be fair, you so, aged uh, very well. <laughs> well, God bless you, love. <laughs> <laughs> so if you listen to this, uh, James boys, you naughty, naughty lads. What was your first major extravagant purchase once this all kicked off and went mad? Well, a couple of things. One, I bought a car for everyone in my family, all members of my family. My my mum got a convertible Mercedes. I remember that. Um, and uh, you know, I brought I bought little cars for my brother and my sister. 
And uh, I studio, I think, was probably the biggest um, outlay. Uh, because back then, I mean, now you can buy a studio and a laptop for a, you know, nothing, really. <laughs> but those days, it was like hundreds of thousands. I think I spent hundreds of thousands on on a studio. And I built a room and everything. And it, it was one of the, it was a really great studio. I, You know, over the years, I had um, a Hall of Notes in there. Roger did an out, uh, some recording there. Um, Robbie Williams did the Millennium demos in there. So, yeah, that was probably my biggest uh, extravagance. And... We have to talk about the fashion. A lot of yeah. leather. <laughs> a lot of leather, I notice. Um, yeah, it's a bit village people when I look back. A, a magnificent head of hair. Um, but I have to ask, like, were you blonde out of a bottle? Because I noticed in Buddy Song, you're a brunette. So you're, you're like brunette yeah, now. <laughs> probably. <laughs> My mum was a big kind of, uh, you know, sunning kind of girl. She's a, she's a blonde uh Dolly Bird, I guess you can call my mum. So I think she used to do that for me. And once I went blonde uh, around that time, um, it kind of became like part of the, you know, part of the image, as it were. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, look at me now. I mean, I'm, my hair's like you know, brown basically. <laughs> Not even blonde, dirty blonde. I said, dirty blonde. What were the fans like um, at the time? Because I mean, you were on the cover of smash hits for like best part of the year so i imagine yeah. they were they were pretty crazy yeah there's some crazy stories because when it all because it, it happened so quick um that suddenly there were just hundreds of girls outside our our house much to the disgust of our neighbors and my dad ended up putting a fence around and some you know electric gates around the house and stuff and my mum was such a softy with them. She would, she would kind of let some, some of them in and, you know, she would go out and bring them cups of tea sometimes. And there was this one girl who, who was desperate for the toilet. And um, my mum kind of said, oh, come on, just, just go and sneak in and just quickly have a wee. And so she let her in. <laughs> and what she didn't know is, is that this woman, this girl, I remember her name, Belinda, she came in and she stole a toilet roll. <laughs> Having to put it off her jumper or whatever, and then she took it out to the girls at the front at the at the front of the gate, and she was selling off, you know, pieces Sheets. of the toilet roll, <laughs> sheets of the toilet roll, pound a pop, Jesney's toilet roll. So then, from then on, she was known as Belinda Bogroll. That's how I remember her name. <laughs> Belinda Bogroll, if you're listening, please get in touch. Chesney wants his toilet roll back. <laughs> <laughs> no, she can have it. It's, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, in I remember in Buddy Song, girls used to slip body there phone numbers while he was on stage is that is that something you experienced as well yes yeah yeah it's happened many many times um it still happens now actually <laughs> <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always uh amazed as you know it's quite well known that i've been married for like 23 years or so. so i do get them i do get uh you know people it's you know throwing notes on still get the knickers as well genevieve <laughs> oh yeah still got it love still got it <laughs> Okay. I only call a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> How does Chrissy feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know. Shh. Okay. So now we are going to move away from the nostalgia zone and okay. into what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. I like it. Latted. Wow, this is a different atmosphere in here. It's a, it's a little darker <laughs> in here. <laughs> yes. 
It had dark moments and light moments. So I guess with any quick rise, inevitably comes the fall. Um, and you were dropped by your record company not long after the success of the one and only. So that must have been quite psychologically tough for you as a young artist. I definitely had uh, a bump um, on the way back down. But if it, with any fame, you, you have to kind of develop some kind of thick skin. And, you know, because you get so much um, crap from the press, which I did. Mm. Um, and I liked to think at the time um, that it was like water off a duck's back, you know, oh, that's just what they say about you, you know. Um, but it, it used to affect my family and I, and I definitely noticed that. I remember, I remember having my mum in tears because of something that Piers Morgan had said or something that week, you know, and trying to console her saying, no, it's okay, don't worry, they're just trying to sell newspapers and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I, I definitely had a slightly thicker skin than, than most, I think, by the time that actually happened. And at the time, yes, I was, it was a bump. It was kind of like being thrown out of a nightclub, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I, there's a, well, there was a moment I just bought a house actually. And, uh, suddenly realized that maybe I can't afford this now. And, um, nobody was calling me back, you know, the record label who were kind of like, to me were like family I had girls at the record label that would, you know, travel around with me all the time. And suddenly I wasn't getting calls back from the people that, I had built this kind of family-like relationships with. So that was hard. But I don't think I realized how hard it was until many years later. You know, it's like when you go, everyone going into therapy afterwards, and then you start mm. talking about these things, and then you break down. And it's like, that's how I realized, oh, shit, I haven't actually dealt with this, with this stuff uh, properly. And um, I have now, I think. I mean, I still ha have little pangs about it, but... Uh, you know, it's, I, but I look back at it now and think I'm, I'm actually really glad it happened to me that way. I'm glad that I had the success. I'm glad that I had the fall. Um, because life is, you know, ups and downs and, and you're not supposed to, you know, only experience the highs. I feel like I'm a more rounded person mm. because of it. And, uh, maybe a little bit more compassionate than I would have been if it, mm. if I'd have just carried on having success. Mm. And, you know, I think, as a, as a husband and a father, I think I'm probably, um, you know, I'm more equipped, you know? Mm. Do you think that record companies are now any more aware of the duty of care that they have for their artists rather than just being kind of concerned with the, the machine of the music industry? I think in many ways it's worse. With the advent of uh, reality shows, like X Factor and, you know, all of them um, include, and I'm not just talking about music, I'm talking about Love Island and all these kind of shows. They take mm. these young kids and they give them a touch of fame. And if you don't have a support of a good family or good people around you, and you maybe not as, you know, well adjusted, you, you get spat out, you know, you, you experience this incredible, um, you know, high where everybody's, you know, loves you and tells you how great you are and press are like, oh, pictures of you everywhere and, and you have fans and Twitter followers and, you know, that's the other thing, social media, that's a, another minefield there for kids. And there's nothing to help them after the fall. You know, I've obviously been there and I experienced it, but now it must be so much harder with, with, uh, with 
their social media could so many people out there just anonymously hating and i've experienced mm -hmm. it myself and you know i i try not to look at look at it because no matter how you know how much you say it, it's not going to get through there those arrows are going to come through sometimes and some of them are going to hit right in your heart no matter how you know tough you think you are and you know i, I know that some people have you know really fallen on, onto really difficult times and some some people have actually committed suicide because of it so for me i think the 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 entertainment business needs to take a look at this um and be a little bit more careful with especially the younger you know talents that they use um because they get discarded and they get left to to pick up the pieces themselves so i mean i feel very strongly about it especially as i know that uh, I know a few people that have been through that machine and have not come out of it very well, to be quite honest with you. Um, it's hard. Mm. It's hard. You, you, I mean, I, I've mentored quite a few, you know, young artists that have kind of been through, through it. And one of the things I always tell them is that, you know, don't believe any of it because it's all a load of bullshit. You know, none of it actually matters. And you, as a young person, your priorities are, you know, are to figure out what you're doing with your life and you want to be famous or, you know, some people like that people just want to be famous just for famous sake, you know, so they have these priorities that are maybe a little bit skew if and a little bit off. Mm. Um, and obviously as you grow older, you realize that those aren't the important things in life, that it's, you know, your, your love of your family and your friends. And, um, and, and for me, it's like, it, all of that stuff leapfrogged anything that, uh, you know, any, um, drive that I had for, for making it in the music industry, which, I mean, it's still there, but I remember as a young man, it was like, it was so all consuming. It's all I had, mm. you know, it's, it was the only thing that was in my head was like, you know, what, how can I make it? How can I, what can I do to the next thing I can do? Um, so I, I, you know, for me, I guess, I guess it would be to kind of me mentoring these kids to kind of make them realize a little bit more. There's a little bit more to life than, than that. The other thing about these, um, these kids that do get into these, uh, reality shows is that they, they intrinsically are a little bit vain and a little bit kind of uh, wanting to, to people to love them. Mm. So, they, you know, sometimes there's, there's a little bit of something missing there that they need to, to address anyway. So, so the vulnerableness uh, doesn't help. Um, you had what I guess would be fair to say were sort of wilderness years in the um, mid to late 90s. And then a gig at Student Union kind of kicked it all off for you again. And then you've been touring pretty much ever since. Yeah, I had um, those those wilderness years were some of the funnest, though, I have to say. <laughs> um, because what I did was I kind of rebelled against the pop world. You know, I just wanted to be in Radiohead. <laughs> formed bands that where we all turned up to eleven and you know shoegazed, and I played the Candon Underworld as you know, not as me. I never, I never went out as, with as my name um, for probably about eight years or something like that. So, so those years were fun. You know, I actually came over to New York, and we lived in New York with a band in one bedroom. You know, and so I, did, I kind of almost paid my dues the other way round. You know. Playing, mm. playing gigs for nothing and, uh, you know, living off of just nothing really and little side jobs and things like that. So yeah, when in early two thousands, when I was approached, uh, by a promoter to possibly do a show, 
at a student union. I think it was in Lincoln, Lincoln and and Nottingham. Maybe it was like two in one night, um, and I I was really apprehensive about it to be honest because I, I just thought, well, it's been like you know ten years something like this. Must have been two thousand two thousand and one. So it's been like nine or ten years since the one and only. Mm. And I, any time anyone had seen me live and recognised me on stage with some weird band name, <laughs> and they'd be like, "Play the one and only," and I'd be like, "Bugger off!" Um, so I never, I didn't even play that song for years. Um, and so I just thought people would have forgotten about it and about me, you know. And I, I did really didn't think that it was going to be still relevant. Uh, but I was wrong, and you know, I, pl- I remember going on stage very nervously, going on stage um, in Lincoln or Nottingham, wherever it was. And uh, I because it was all very kind of techno music on before me. And I remember in the being in the dressing room, it's all, you know, through the wall. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to hate me. I'm going on with an acoustic guitar for Christ's sake, you know. And I remember being introduced and I walked out on stage and there was like kids in university who would have been like 10 when the one and only came out. And they're all 19 now, you know, and they, you know, they had pictures of me on their t-shirts and, banners and stuff and it was just it was amazing what i didn't know was that that song and that record had been kind of passed down like some kind of mantle and over the 10 years it'd become like a student anthem you know <laughs> uh, it was amazing and so i never looked back there at that point I'd, i must have done ugh, i must have done hundreds of student union gigs at that point you know mm-hmm. went out band and just we just blitzed it and I, now you know years later 10 15 years later now I, uh, 20 years later, what am I talking about? Um, I, I get, you know, people come up and say, oh, you played my student union. <laughs> and I remember you, it was you and uh, Supergrass or you and the darkness or, or you, or even worse, like you and Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> or you and the Wurzels. Rainbow is in Bungle, Zippy and George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they have a show. I don't know if they do it anymore, but they had a show <laughs> where it was, it's Zippy and George and Bungle and they, they it was completely blue. Like everything was sex and swearing and zippy, you're like, ah, oh, fucking, fucking, like that. <laughs> yeah, very funny. So you married your wife, Chrissy, in 1997. Tell I me did. a little bit about how you met. Um, I used to live uh, in West London in a place called Mortlake, which is by kind of near Richmond. And um, there was a pub called the Edinburgh Castle around the corner and a friend of mine was playing there and it was like a spit and sawdust kind of pub you know two f- flat men with flat caps and a jack russell type of thing and uh it was always a bit of a tough gig uh for for the people who used to do like you know open mics and stuff like that and my friend miles he called me up and he was like can you just come along and i remember it was fourth of july which obviously doesn't mean anything uh, in england but i thought ah, oh, why not you know so me and my flatmate ash we went down to see uh miles do his thing and it was exactly what I thought. There was no one there. There was, you know, two blokes with, with their pints in the corner and, and there's Miles playing his songs. And for some crazy reason, my wife, my now wife, uh, walked in with another friend of hers, two models, just walked into this pub. And uh, they were both American and they were out celebrating 4th of July. God knows why they chose the Edinburgh Castle, but uh, I'm glad she did because... Uh, you know, it was like the angels sang. And then she said, I said, wow, can I, can I buy you a drink? She said, I'll have a pint of lager. I was like, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, she pretty much moved in within t- two months and we've been together ever since. Um, so you've got three kids now and yep. they're all pursuing performing arts. 
Yes. Um, is it is that are. something that you've you've Lord encouraged or have you had any kind of concerns about it because of the experience you've had with the business? I mean, I have concerns, but but I, you know, my my parenting, our parenting is really, you know, let them follow their their passions, and of course, they've grown up in a musical household. My wife is also an actress, and uh, so they've grown up in the music industry, and they the entertainment industry, and they love it. And I I would never kind of deny them that. Uh, my my fourteen year old son is an incredible guitar player now. He only picked it up in like August or October time something. And now he's better than me. He's like, he's playing, you know, Prince solos and stuff. He's incredible. And my eldest, uh, who's just about to be 19, is, uh, he's just um, graduated from a, one of those fame schools, you know, like over here where you walk, you turn up on the, uh, the campus and jazz there's hands. a girl. That, yeah, jazz hands everywhere. There's somebody <laughs> doing a pirouette over there and somebody over there doing a, uh, a Shakespeare monologue or something like that, you know. So he's, he wants to go into some kind of theatre. He's a, he's a thespian darling. And then my daughter, who is 16, is a singer and an actress. And, you know, there's, there's no hope. It's, it's <laughs> the only way. There were never going to be accountants. Same as me and my brother and sister, really. We grew up in a same kind of household, guitars propped up in the corners. And so, uh, you know, it was almost destined to be. Uh, speaking about your eldest, you wrote a song for him. Um, called called Aeroplane, which I would love for you to play for us now. Um, and while you're setting up, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about the story behind it. Okay. I wrote this song about my son, Casey, who, when he was about six or seven years old, loved playing with paper airplanes. And we were in the garden in England and doves throwing, making planes and throwing them out for him. And he was running and bringing them back. And, and he came to me once and he said, Daddy, please make me an airplane. I want another one just the same. And it was just a sweet little phrase that he said. And I wrote that in my diary that night and pretty much forgot about it for many years. And then I came across it. I was looking through my journals years later and he's now, uh, you know, uh, this hairy bloke who lives in my house and uses my internet and uh, <laughs> locks his door. And so I, I know it kind of got me thinking about, you know, what it's like to be a parent and, and, you know, one minute you have a baby in your arms and the next minute they're asking for the car keys, you know, these, these moments in time that you, you really need to kind of see that, just take a little step back and see the wood for the trees of what you actually have in front of you. Cause it's so fast, um, this time of life, you know, it's, it's school runs and lunch boxes and, and, you know, homework and this, this and that, and, you know, and, and they, they, then they've got their, um, classes that they go to. And I mean, it's just, you know, everyone says it and we're all guilty of kind of missing those moments and, and then they're gone, you know, this is the way it is, you know, blink and you miss it. So I wrote this song about, about that moment. Um, and those little snapshots in time that we all should pay attention to. please make me an aeroplane I want another one just the same I watch it fly with the sun in my eye I'll walk you home in the rain from the fair are you cold? I give you my coat to wear 
I don't have kids, but it made me think about my dad and and made me a little bit teary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember playing it, and I've been doing um, cruises the last over the last couple of years, and uh, I play in this one little room called the Limelight Club, and it's a very small kind of intimate um, cl- uh, place of 120 people. You see the whites of their eyes; they're right there. You know, it's a really nice venue actually, and. And I, I enjoyed playing it and it's just acoustic and I just play songs like this that are just, um, you know, mean something to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember once I was playing this, that song 
And I, I do it to a, a, like a video of my kids in the background, you know, nicely produced and everything else. And there was a table of a couple sitting right there, close to me there. And just towards the end of the song, <laughs> I was playing it and I looked up and he was streaming, this guy, <laughs> just blubbering, you know, which got me going as well. <laughs> By the end of it, I was like, oh my God. And I pointed him out. I was like, I'm so, obviously I, I touched you there with that, with those lyrics. And he was like, I just, I just want to go back to when my kids were little. <laughs> like, oh God, me too. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's the beautiful thing about music. It can do that. Those yeah, things. Yeah, definitely. Them. So before lockdown, you were about to release an album and obviously you'd had tours lined up and everything and that's all kind of been put on hold. Um, but you then launched your live and unfiltered shows which you mentioned at the start, um, which have gone some way to make up for the live gigs that you've had to cancel. How do they work? And does it feel, because I know it's all kind of like online, does it feel strange to not get that immediate feedback from people that you would at a live gig? It's funny, I've got used to that. When we first started, uh, I was definitely a little bit thrown. When you finish a song... Uh, you know, when you got a crowd, you get a applaud and you say, oh, thank you, you know. And so I didn't quite know what to do with myself. I'd finish a song and there's a deathly silence. And I'd be like, thank you. <laughs> you know, just like, but you have to look at it because we've been doing it on Zoom and it's only 100 people. And uh, and so I kind of flick through after the songs, flick through and I can see. And I, I do this thing. I was like, this is how we clap so I can really see you, you know, and I do this. And so I see people going, yeah. So that helps. And I do this thing at the end of the show uh, where I, I get, I, take everyone off of mute mm. so I can really hear them. And I said, come on, let me hear your voices. So it's obviously a, you know, a cacophony of madness and, and shouting and screaming and stuff like that, which is lovely. And so that f- almost feels like the old days. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> but the shows have been really fun. Actually, they started off really for me an excuse to kind of, you know, play some music and, and do some gigs because I haven't been doing that. But then it turned into something else. I started um, giving away tickets to, uh, what we called we nominate your hero. We got people to nominate their NHS key worker heroes, and and so we would bring them them on. To, um, to, they'd come into the show, and I'd bring them all up and talk to them. So it's a very interactive. It's become like a TV show in a way, um, and they, I let them tell their stories, which has been really emotional. There's been a lot of tears. It's been really quite special, actually. It's turned into something completely different to what it started at. Um, and I've really, I've really enjoyed it. We we have a charity for every show, which we give um, percentage to um, to that to that charity of the week. I take um, requests, and and as I said, I've been theming it. Uh, so next next uh, Friday, the tenth of July, is uh, is our last, is our final of season one. We've even done it that, like that, and uh, so it's the sixth episode. And uh, I'm doing a desert island disc kind of. Um, a theme where I'm going to be playing music from artists that really meant a lot to me and, and kind of, you know, which had shaped my musical life, you know. So, yeah, it's been fun. Cool. So you mentioned that each of your shows supports charity. And I know there's there's one other charity that you're quite close to, which is Ripples of Change, the Drake and Kiersey Foundation. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit more about that one and why that one means so much to you. We <sighs> can get me going here. Um, when we first moved here to the States, I started working with a young artist, a beautiful girl, great singer, came to the studio with just fabulous ideas, great songwriter, just, just really like the full package, you know? And she had, she also had great ideas of, of how she wanted to be perceived 
You know, she was very, she always turned up in kind of fifties mini skirts and, you know, she always looked the part and she had this kind of retro look about her. She was fabulous. So I started producing an album uh, for her and we were writing songs together. And as with, this is like eight years ago. So at the time I still needed babysitters. Don't need that anymore. So that's how I, but we found our babysitters, all the, all the young artists that I, I work with. <laughs> so Kirsty, uh, Kiki, as we call her, she became our babysitter and she lived in San Diego, which is a couple of hours drive away. So, so we were like her LA family and she used to stay over with us a lot. And uh, especially when I was working with her. And uh, she quickly became kind of per- part of the family in a way. You know, the kids kind of looked looked at her as almost like a big sister, and we were quite parental over her. And she, if she was out for a, on a you know a night out in Hollywood or something, and my wife and I were like, you know, she'd come in at one o'clock in the morning and we're like, yeah, where have you been? You know, <laughs> she was just lovely. And there's, there's a bit of a sad story. And she 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 ended up taking her life, and it was a huge shock for us. Because uh, we we didn't know that she was suffering at all with any kind of mental illness illness, and um, so it really was a, a, a complete shock out out of nowhere. Because she was one of those people um, that just lit up a room. You know, she she would just bounce around, and she had the biggest smile, and she was just so gorgeous. And uh, so it really was a shock for us. And that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was to tell the kids uh, that she was gone. And uh, so after her death, um, you know, I found out a little bit about how she suffered a bit um, with um, with uh, both bipolar. I didn't know she was bipolar. So she had depression was in her life, you know. And uh, and so I got to know her parents very well. I did the eulogy at her, her funeral um, and ended up finishing her album for her um, after, after the fact. And, um, you know, in fact, I've got it right here. I'll show you. I know... I'm, I know your listeners can't uh, can't see it, but uh, that's the that's the album cover right there. Oh, um, she's stunning. She's beautiful. I know. Um, Kirsty Rouge, Rouge. If anyone's interested, or you can go to Ripples of, of Change. Um, her mother started a charity in their name, and all the proceeds um, from the sale of the album goes to the charity. So, so there you go, my lovely Kiki. I mean, that must have been hard for you, and and. And as a family to cope with that, where do you find the light in the darkness? Presumably it inspires you to write. Yes, I've written. Uh, it's funny. It took me two years. Uh, I knew I had a song in me for Kiki. And um, two years after she died, uh, the song popped out. And uh, that will be on my latest album, which hopefully will be out early next year. As far as seeing the light, um, it's just a matter of, of celebrating her. You know, we have her pictures around the house and, um, you know, we, she was just such a beautiful um, ray of light in our lives. And so we like to just remember her for that, you know. And, uh, you know, her mother says the same thing. that she, she's, It's funny because I wanted um, some of the money to go to a, a mental health um, charity. And it's something that I have you know, been involved in a lot since then. Um, and I've done so much work for mental health, um, you know, charities. I'm down the country mainly in England. And, uh, I, during, through my kind of journey and I've realized how many friends and family I actually do suffer. I, I didn't really know cause I'm quite a positive, upbeat person. You know, I've never had any kind of chemical imbalance in my head mm. or anything like that. And never, never really been a, d- a depressive kind of person. 
So I, I guess I don't relate to it in a way, but I was amazed at how many people have been touched by it. So, I, you know, I was speaking to her mom about it and I was kind of, you know, same, you know, perhaps it should be a, some of the money should go to, to uh, the mental health I- issues, but she wanted her, her daughter to be remembered for the beautiful bright light that she was yeah. and not for that, yeah. you know, which is understandable, um, you know, because that's exactly what she, she is, yeah. you know, she is a beautiful girl. So yeah, it, it's, it's tough. Um, <laughs> and even now, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to talk about her. Um, but we do as a family, we, we, we mention her and sometimes, you know, pictures will come up on Google or whatever, and, or somebody will mention her and, and, uh, you know, it takes us back and it's, it's tough because she really was, uh, a, a big part of our lives for, you know, maybe five years there. And, uh, she, she really got under our skin, you know, mm-hmm. she was such a, she was such a, a, a great, a great girl. She really was. Oh, you honor her really well. Um, thank you. Before we go, I'd love for you to play me one more song, please. Um, and it's one that you've just written during lockdown, inspired by the program Normal People. Yeah, my wife and I watched Normal People, and uh, as we do sometimes, uh, we sit sit in the you know in the kitchen or wherever it is, and we're actually outside because uh, it's so warm here at the moment, and uh, we just talk about different things and. We were talking about, uh, you know, that love, uh, the feeling of, of that love. Of, and there was a line in the show that said, it's not like this with other people. And they said, I think both of them said it at different times, if you haven't seen the, uh, the show. And it just kind of reminded us of our love and, and how, it's, how it's grown and, the, and how different it is from when we first met to how it is now. And uh, yeah, it just got us, got us uh, you know, in that lovey-dovey moment. And so we wrote, <laughs> wrote a little song. Um, and, and then the, we ended up, uh, I recorded it just, you know, in my little studio here and, uh, and then we ended up doing a little video for it. So if you, if anyone's interested in seeing the video for it, it's all, it's all on my, um, YouTube, which you can get to from chesneyhawks.com. This is called, it's not like this. It's not like this at all It's not like this 
Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Chesney. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Um, you've been brilliant. No, thank you so much. It's actually been really enjoyable for me too. Wasn't Chesney a nice chap? You can find out more about his live shows at liveandunfiltered.com. And if you want to know more about Kirsty's album that Chesney talked about, you can go to ripplesofchange.foundation. Hope you enjoyed this first episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. If you did, do please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to join me reminiscing with other much-loved stars from the 1980s to early noughties, please subscribe and you'll be the first to know when it comes out. In the meantime, if you want to say hello or just suggest a guest for future episodes, you can reach me on Instagram at Celebrity Catch-Up Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catch-Up Pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.